0: So, um this whole stretch of chapters, Leviticus chapter 12 to Leviticus chapter 15, they're actually all related. All of these chapters relate to physical issues. So chapter 12 is about childbirth and what happens after childbirth related to ritual, cleanliness, or uncleanliness. And then in chapters 13 and 14, it's going to deal with issues of contagion, right? Because we're all really not tired of hearing about that. Um, about, it's actually about leprosy and leprous diseases, diseases of the body, diseases of the house. Um, we're going to talk about that next week. And then it comes back in Leviticus chapter 15, back to issues that are similar to chapter 12, issues of bodily fluids, basically. Um, and, and I really wasn't joking. I mean, this is what those things are about. It's about bodily discharges, fluids that come out of our body. Now, I want to say up front that none of these things have to do with sin. This is all about ritual impurity, okay? And so the fact that your body is made in a certain way, it's not sin when these things happen to you, but they do make you, uh, as we've been talking about over the last two months or so, ritually impure. Now, if you are joining us for the first time, then you missed a lot of back story and a lot of backdrop, and we've been going through Leviticus chapter by chapter. Basically, the way Leviticus is structured is the first five chapters unpack the offerings and sacrifices, and the first few are related to worship. You bring a burnt offering, um, you bring a grain offering, you bring a remembrance offering. All of those offerings are ways of worshiping the Lord. And then there's two offerings that are specifically related to what we would In we would tend to call sin, but they're really not sin, in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 is called the sin offering, but that's really a poor translation. It's more of the decontamination offering, and it's related to the fact that uh, God's space is sacred. He lives within the midst of his people, and then things corrupt that space, and it needs to be clean. And so in that particular area of Leviticus, it's referring to unintentional sin, things you did, and then five years later, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And so it's referred to those kinds of things and how you decontaminate the area. And then also guilt offerings, uh, or maybe more aptly put, reparation offering, which is when you do something and you realize it was wrong after the fact, how do you make amends for it? The offering in Leviticus that deals with sin, sin the way we think of sin, is actually Leviticus chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement, which we're going to hit in a few weeks. And so I was, this morning I was praying, and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is really hard for modern people to understand, this idea of ritual cleanliness or being ritually unclean. It's just difficult for our brains to comprehend because we didn't grow up in this kind of culture. And what came to my mind is the parable of the wedding feast which we're not going to read, but maybe most of you, some of you guys remember that. Basically, there's a story that Jesus tells where um, the king is going to have, he's going to host a wedding and the people who are invited don't come and he's super upset about it. And he says, go out into the highways and byways and invite everybody you can find. And they come to, to come to the wedding and they show up. And then there's at the end, there's this really strange thing where the guy goes, where's your wedding clothes? And the guy's like, well, I don't know. I just came from work. And he's like, get out of here. And he kicks him out. And I was thinking to myself that this idea of cl- ritual cleanliness and forgiveness is kind of seen in that passage um, in some strange way, not as the exact implication of the parable. But think of cleanliness as having the right clothes. You know what I mean? And so you know that there's certain things that make you unclean. And it's like, well, you can't go to the wedding in that outfit you know, that kind of idea. And so we see cleanliness and forgiveness at both at work at, in the gospel, even though we often miss it. But hopefully those of you who have been sitting through these sermons are seeing it now. We see in 1 John 1, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see there's these two aspects of the gospel of forgiveness and being cleansed. So that God can live in our sacred space, his Holy Spirit indwelling within us. So what I want you to realize today up front is that the things that we're talking about are not immoral acts of impurity, but they are things that make us somehow hard to understand, unfit for sacred space. In other words, you couldn't enter the tabernacle, or you couldn't enter the temple, or you couldn't participate in corporate worship if you were unclean. So I'm going to read Leviticus 12. We're not going to read Leviticus 15. Um, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of, her, of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks. Oh, no, you didn't. As in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. So you see both the worship as well as the unintentional sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves. Make a mental note in your little journal. This is the offering that Jesus' parents gave, right? Showing that they were poor. Or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. I told you, you'll never hear another sermon on this passage. In chapter 15, the reason I'm not reading chapter 15 is not because I'm afraid to, it's because we see much of the same concepts as this, except different discharges from the body. And the only thing that varies is essentially, um, you know, how long it lasts or what the process of being cleansed are. And so in chapter 15, it's expanded beyond childbirth to menstruation, emissions of semen, sexual intercourse, and other discharges. Now, listen, we got to toss aside the squeamishness. And so if anybody here is super uncomfortable, um, welcome to Revolve. I will try to make you more comfortable with levity. But we do need to toss aside the squeamishness and, and really just try to understand what is God saying. Because if you're honest with yourself and you grew up in church, how many of you grew up in some form of church? Okay. Put your hands up. I, some of you, I see you. I know you grew up in church. Put that hand up. All right. Keep your hand up if you understand Leviticus 12. Exactly. Okay. And so, for a lot of us, you know, when someone came and they say, Well, yeah, but you guys are believers, you're Christians, but what's the deal with the Old Testament law? And we're like, Well, you know, the blood. And that was our big explanation. And so, it's important that we understand these things because there is a sense in which the reputation of God is at stake when we don't understand these things, right? And so, let's unpack it. So, again, up front, kids are a blessing, it's not a punishment. Kids are a blessing. The Bible views having children as good, and so this isn't about sin. It is about protecting sacred space. And so why this understanding of being unclean? So the idea is that the loss of blood in childbirth or any of these bodily fluids in these chapters signifies that one is incomplete in some way, and is therefore ritually unclean. And so you have to, again, think of this is from the perspective of the ancient mind. In the ancient mind, there's this idea that God is the giver of life as opposed to the giver of death. And God has given you these fluids that relate to life. And these fluids are supposed to stay within your body, okay? Okay. Um, And when we lose these fluids, there's somehow this idea that we are less than we're supposed to be, and we become ritually unclean. And so from another perspective, in the Old Testament, you you have limited access or no access to the tabernacle or temple if a part of you is unwhole, okay? So for example, last week I mentioned it. And I'll mention it again this week. It says in Deuteronomy that if you're a eunuch, you can't come into the temple or the tabernacle. All right? There's a sense in which there's a part of you that is unwhole, and so therefore you're ceremonial unclean. These reproductive discharges, menstruation, all of these things are a part of you that makes you whole, have departed, and therefore you need to be restored. And so in the, these situations where a person is not whole, either permanently or temporarily, they aren't allowed access to the sacred space of God. Now, you have to understand, this isn't because God doesn't like you or because it was wrong that that happened to you or because it was sin, you know, that you, that you got your period. That's not what the scriptures are implying at all. This is talking about the perfection and the wholeness of God, right? God is perfect. God is whole. He is the only being that is whole within himself as this triune being. He didn't create people because he was lonely and therefore lacking. God didn't create us because he needed something and was therefore lacking. God is whole in and of himself, and that is unique compared to any other uh, any other being anything that god has created nothing else is whole in and of itself but god is entirely perfectly whole that's why he's holy 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 he's completely separate completely unique from everything else and so remember that paul in in the new testament paul was a terrorist he became a follower of jesus he used to kill Christians, then he became one and was telling people about Christ all over um, Europe and, and the, uh, you know, the Middle East and Asia Minor. And Paul explains that the purpose of the law was like a schoolmaster to show us our need for salvation. In other words, the, the law was like a mirror, and when you looked into the, the mirror, you realized your blemishes, you realized that you were unclean, you realized that you had you know, dirt all over your face, you big disgrace, and you realized these things, and then that gave you a, a self-awareness of, your, of the reality that you cannot measure up to this ruler to this measuring stick, which is the law. Now, for some of you, you grew, up in the, you grew up in a church where you were told, well, if you just do this, you do that, you pray this, you pray that, you do that 20 times, do this five times, do this three times, then you're fine, right? But that's no different from the law. You can't live up to the law. A matter of fact, Paul argues in Romans, not only can we not live up to the law of God, we're such in need of a Savior that we can't even live up to the laws we create ourselves, right? We say things to our kids like, you shouldn't lie. And then your friend's like, you like my dress? And you're like, yeah, it's sweet. <laughs> right? We can't even live up to the laws that we create, let alone the law that God has created. And so the point of this is that we would realize our desperate need to be made whole by someone greater than us. Also remember last week we talked about food laws and we talked about this idea of created order, that there's a sense in the law in which things are supposed to um, kind of extrapolate or go on a trajectory of where they should be. Like we gave the example that fish are supposed to have scales and fins. And if they don't have scales but they do have fins, they're unclean, they're weird. You know, or we said that like insects with wings should fly. Birds that have wings don't fly. It's not natural, all right? And so we talked about those ideas in the law last week. Along the same idea, your blood should stay within you, okay? And so a loss of this order a loss of these life-giving fluids, right? These fluids that are involved in conception, these fluids that are involved in death, these fluids that are involved in birth, these are life fluids, right? In these life fluids, to lose some of these, there's a sense in which things go from being in order to being in chaos. You guys following me? Yeah? Super eager. I've never seen... The church, I'm so proud of you guys. I've never seen you more engaged than when we talk about <laughs> bodily fluids. <laughs> These bodily fluids make life possible. That's, that's part of the point. Okay, so in Leviticus 12, there's three steps that are required to move from defilement to purity. Um, the woman is to remain unclean in isolation, in other words, for 7 to 14 days, depending on the gender of the child. We will touch on that. She then moves into the second stage, which can last for 33 to 66 days. And and during that time, she's neither pure nor impure. She's like in a temporary holding status. And then finally, she offers these sacrifices, the burnt offering and the sin offering, in order to enter, re-enter into full communion with God and with God's covenant people. In other words, she can be around people again. She had been isolated, and now she can actually enter back into fellowship. She can go to the tabernacle and participate where the women would be segregated and those sorts of things. So she's allowed to go back in. So notice that the time of purification for the mother is twice as long if she gives birth to females rather than males. We're not going to skip that. We will touch on it, what we think it could mean. So at this point in time, you're probably wondering, What on earth is going on? Remember that Leviticus, though one of the main themes of Leviticus, is how does does this new people worship this holy God? Right? That God is uniquely holy. In other words, when when he introduces himself to Moses, Moses says, Well, when people ask who you are, what should you say? And he says, tell them, I am sent you. Now, most people, if you said to someone, well, what does it mean, I am? And they say, well, that means God is eternal. Who's heard that explanation? I am, he always was, always will be. Um, I had a Hebrew professor who unpacked it differently, and I think he's right. He said, you have to remember that the pagans defined their gods by the God of the, Right? It's the God of the mountain. It's the God of the sea. It's the God of the storm, the God of the harvest, the God of fertility, the God of war. And what does God say? If they ask who I am, you tell them I am. In other words, you don't define me. I define myself. Because guess what? Yahweh is the God of the harvest and the God of fertility and the God of the storm. He's all of them because he's the one true God. And so he defines himself with this open-ended I am because he alone defines himself. He's uniquely holy. But then he says, my people, the covenant people of Israel, they are holy as well. In other words, they're set apart. Not that they're perfect. They're set apart for my purposes, And so Leviticus is all about how this holy nation that's set apart will worship this holy, holy, holy God who's unique. And he's been unpacking that you don't worship me the way pagans worship their gods. You know, the God of Moloch, they would take infants and they would sacrifice infants so they would get a good harvest, all right? They'd go and, and to sleep with a cult prostitute in order to have their crops blessed. He says, you don't worship me the way pagans worship. You don't worship on your standards or what feels good or what you desire to do. You worship how I uh, determine. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about how Leviticus teaches that God wants to be worshiped in spirit and in truth which then Jesus references in John chapter 4. The idea is that God isn't like the pagan gods, and if the Israelites are to commune with God, they need to be holy like him. And this means they need cleansing laws, sacrifices, and the such. Okay. So from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, this is where it gets a little weird. From the ancient Near Eastern perspective, although the new mother is a source of joy to the community she also produces a mountain of anxiety, okay? I'm going to tell you why. Now, if you've only primarily stayed in the United States, some of these things may be hard to understand. But if you've traveled to developing nations or nations which are more open to a blending of spirit and physical, we have a strong division between spirit and physical, right? But when you go to other countries, everything is blended, all right? For, for a community when a mother has a child, there's also a lot of anxiety because you have to understand infant mortality and the death of mothers giving birth was astronomical. I mean, astronomical during these days. Now... In our you know, 21st century, we look back and we say, well, that's because of this science and that science and these sorts of things. But the rationale in the pagan world behind these risks in the ancient Near East is largely thought to be due to curses, witchcraft, and shamanism. In other words, the idea, if you were a pagan living in the ancient Near East, is if, you, if your child dies in, during birth, you're assuming it's because someone cursed you. You're assuming it's like your neighbor who doesn't like you hired a witch in order to to cast this spell on you so that your baby would die. And the same thing happened with mothers. And so there's this idea in the pagan worldview that all of these things related to protecting the baby, protecting the mom, are entirely rooted in shamanism, witchcraft, curses, those sorts of things. Power objects, amulets, incantations. Now, some scholars would suggest here that the uncleanliness, the uncleanness of the mother with a new child, from the Hebrew perspective, is in many ways to protect her from exposure to things that would harm her baby. Okay? Um, In other words, this is like maternity leave. And so, as you probably know, it wasn't until very recently, like within the last two centuries, the doctors would wash their hands before performing surgeries. And often they would go right from working on a cadaver to helping a woman give birth and then go right into surgery. And they didn't understand why so many people were getting sick and dying. And once they instituted the simple practice of washing their hands, the fatalities and mortalities in these things plummeted. Okay, And so there is a sense and a suggestion from some scholars that this idea of isolating the mother and baby for an extended period of time is actually God giving a great, remarkable mercy that stands in sharp contrast to the pagan worldview, which would try to protect your baby by doing all kinds of weird things, like saving the afterbirth and bringing it to a shaman and then having him do a ritual and then you taking the blood and wiping it on your face and wiping it on your baby's face, all of those kinds of things. Okay. Now, if you've been overseas, you traveled overseas, you would understand that these things might sound weird to you, but they are not far-fetched for a large portion of the world. The point is that the care for this woman is vastly different from the pagan culture that's rooted in shamanism and witchcraft. So in the Israelite world, God tells them to quarantine because they're unclean, so you can't worship and you have to isolate. Now, so th- I think there's two strong potential explanations for these things. And they might both be true or one of them's true. Right? One, well, we know this is true. God is holy. God is whole. Humans are not. And there are certain things which make us less whole. And in order to restore fellowship with God and one another, these things need to be restored and cleansed. And once that happens, that can continue business as normal. So we need to be clean. Option two is these laws are a mercy to the baby and a mercy to the mother. They're based upon isolation and rest in contrast to protection through ritual and spell. Okay? They probably are both true. But since we're not Jews living in the ancient Near East, just coming out of a pagan culture, some of these things we have to surmise. Okay? Now, let's go to the difference between the number of days between boys and girls. Okay, so notice that although there's a difference in the number of days, you have to notice that the offering for restoration is identical. What that tells you is that it's not more sinful to have a baby girl, all right? Or a girl isn't inferior to a boy, there's something else coming, going on here. So a fair number of scholars will say that the boy, according to the law, had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so the fact that, the, that when you have a son, you only have to quarantine for seven days as opposed to 14 is so that the mother can quarantine for seven days and then can attend her son's circumcision, which was a huge deal. Okay, If that's the case, that's actually a remarkable mercy. Um, that's really based on being a mercy to the baby and a mercy to the mom. Other scholars think that there is an ancient Near East understanding, and this comes from rabbinical teachings. Okay, so the rabbis think of them as Jewish scholars. They have tons of commentaries trying to understand the law. And you can go back and you can read those, and they may or may not be accurate, just like if you found a commentary from 500 years ago, it may or may not be accurate. And a lot of the rabb- rabbinical teachings said that they believed that male embryos developed faster than female embryos, and so the female infant needed longer to form outside the womb than the male, um, than the male baby. And at this point in time, you go, ha, 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 ha. but believe it or not, there's actually scientific evidence to support that male embryos develop faster than female embryos, which is something they have to take into account when they do in vitro fertilization, okay? And so the point is this, though. I think this is more about protecting the female child than about a punishment for having a female, okay? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Does anybody have any questions about Leviticus 12 before I jump to the New Testament? (laughs) Do you at least understand what I'm trying to present? All right, then let's jump to Mark chapter 5. And so in your journal, write Mark 5, 21 to 34. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered, under, suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Now, so here's the situation. Jesus is doing his ministry. This guy, Jairus, comes. He says, my daughter is sick. Please come heal her. Jesus goes with him. And there's a throng of people. Jesus always had people who just were all up ons. You know, maybe he's going to make a lot of bread today. They didn't know what was going to happen. They wanted to see some miracles, right? This is what Jesus said. He said, this generation is wicked. They only seek for a sign. They just wanted a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. But then there's this woman who is ceremonial unclean, according to Leviticus 12 and 15. This is a woman who, according to Leviticus 12 and 15, is not permitted to go into the temple, because it's a temple now, during Jesus' day, and not the tabernacle. She's not permitted to worship with her fellow Jewish sisters. She's not even supposed to be in public. And if she goes into public, she is legally bound to let everybody know she is unclean. So in other words, this woman is not supposed to be there. When she leaves her house, she's supposed to have a giant sign on that says unclean and ring a bell so everybody knows she's coming and they can flee, okay? Now, according to the law, her presence infects every other person around her. Everybody around her is now ceremonial unclean. And had they known they were ceremonial unclean, they would have had to go through the process of ritual and going through these offerings and sacrifices. Now, I want you to take a moment, not just to look at this woman as a story in a book, but imagine this woman. I want you to imagine this woman's shame. I want you to imagine this woman's pain who probably couldn't go to a Jewish doctor because she'd be unclean, so she went to all kinds of Roman doctors giving all her money so that she could basically be a science experiment. And who knows what they did to her to try to stop the bleeding in this day and age. I want you to manage her loneliness. We've had some form of isolation for two years. Imagine being isolated for 12 years, and not just isolated, but that people didn't want to go near you. I want you to imagine how desperate she would be for community. I want you to imagine how desperate she would be for human touch that wasn't the hands of a doctor. I want you to imagine her desperation for some kind of breakthrough. Verse 27, well, she had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Now, this is a risk for her. What if it doesn't work? I mean, it seems silly, like the doctors couldn't fix me. I'm going to touch this guy's robe, and I'm going to be healed. Like all of the modern science of the Roman Empire couldn't help this woman, all of her money. It seems risky. What if someone recognizes her and then they call out to the crowd that hears this unclean woman? How would they react? This is the move of a desperate person. Someone who's at the end of their rope. And I want you to imagine, and it doesn't take much, the thumping of her heart as she inches forward because it says there's a throng, and so that means she has to, like trying to navigate a crowded subway, pushing aggressively through the crowd to get closer to the man that everyone else wanted to be close to, aware with every elbow, every push, every bump that she's making everyone around her unclean, 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 unclean verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned around and said, who touched my garments? Imagine this woman's immediate reaction of joy and fear. Sorry. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and it fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. By touching Jesus' garment, she renders him ceremonial unclean. Technically, according to Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 23, but Jesus is far greater than any purity law. You see, the point is you can't make Jesus unclean. You touch Jesus, you get clean. You don't make him unclean. He is so uniquely holy as the fullness of God dwelling within a man that you touch him and you become clean in the midst of your uncleanliness. Jesus is the definition of clean. He's so clean that when she touches him, she becomes clean. When Jesus asked, Who touched me? the woman responded, It says, With fear and trembling. Can you imagine how many did she make unclean on the way? How would Jesus react? How would the Pharisees have reacted if they were here in this moment? I mean, this is the Pharisees who got mad at Jesus for healing a guy's withered hand on the Sabbath. How would they respond to this woman? Would they stone her? Would they kill her? What would they do? But as is common in Mark, we see that fear moves to faith. She doesn't just feel fear, she feels awe. And as this word word is often translated elsewhere, awe and reverence. Because she's encountered the powerful presence of God and he has healed her. She falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. And how does he respond? He calls her daughter. For 12 years, this woman has been an outcast. For 12 years, her title has been unclean. For 12 years, her title has been pariah. For 12 years, she's had no or limited human contact. For 12 years, she's been cast aside by family. For 12 years, she's been cast aside by friends. She's been cast aside by her religious community and neighbors. And Jesus' first words to her are relationship. Your faith has made you well suggesting both physical and spiritual healing using the Greek word sozo. The woman's faith in Jesus for physical healing at the same time becomes her faith for spiritual healing and salvation. And so what does God want us to get from Leviticus 12 and 15? I think he wants us to get the same thing as Mark 5. You see, significantly, the Lord does not leave this woman in her unclean state, but mercifully provides cleansing and healing. And Leviticus 12 and 15, although they read very different and they look very different, the nature of God is identical because God's mercy is still clear in Leviticus 12 and 15, not to isolate a person forever, but to provide a way for them to receive mercy and cleaning and healing so that they can be restored to corporate and vertical worship with their covenantal God. See, sometimes we're tempted to think that like the old Testament is just like that. It's like a cranky God. And then he kind of got all that out of his system. And now he's just like the cool uncle in the new Testament, but the nature of God is immutable. It never changes. And what we see in the New Testament is the character of God unpacked for us because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. And so what does this teach us about the Lord? It is always the Lord's desire to have close fellowship, with us, and for us to have close fellowship with one another. These laws, as strange as they are, are about God providing a way for a sinful people to have temporary fellowship vertically and temporary fellowship horizontally. But we also see in the midst of these laws their inability to accomplish it with any satisfying finality, which is why Jesus had to be sent, so that not temporarily, but finally, there could be restorative reconciliation both vertically and horizontally. God and man reconciled, and man and man reconciled. So what does God want you to know? God wants you to be near to him. He's actually done everything to make nearness a possibility. He's done all of the work so that you can be reconciled and restored that you can actually draw near in Christ. And now we're commanded in Christ. If you are in Christ, the scripture says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. In addition to that, God wants you to enjoy the beauty of Christian community. See, the gospel has a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. The beauty of the church is supposed to be, though it's not often our experience, the restorative power horizontally of people who would otherwise be enemies and grumblers and malcontents and backstabbers and gossips, people who are constantly judging everyone else around them because they think they're smarter or prettier or stronger or whatever it might be, that in the midst of all of that dysfunction, we can have unity in Christ. You see, the gospel is present even in these passages, and it points to Jesus like a signpost. And now, as you read the New Testament, and you read any any story of someone who gave birth, or any story of someone who was bleeding, or any story of someone with a discharge, <laughs> you realize that this is just more fulfillment of the law, and it should cause us to wonder in the beauty of God. And so let's pray. Father, truly every story whispers this marvelous narrative of the good news. And God, um, these passages in Leviticus are interesting to read on their own, but then when we unpack them from a new covenant perspective, looking back from the cross, it's so much more than interesting, and it goes to wondrous. God, who are we that you would be mindful of us? That you would step out of glory into our dark world as the light of the world. That you would expose our sin and our shame not to condemn us, but so that it could be washed away and cleansed. God, I pray that the gospel, even in these strange passages, would be very real to our hearts. I pray, Lord, for the people in this room that if they are in need of prayer... And healing, either vertically with you because of a fractured relationship or horizontally with others, I pray that you would compel them to stay after for prayer because this is what we're called to do. We thank you that freedom and healing is offered in Christ. I pray that it would be our reality and not just an idea in a textbook. In your name we pray, amen.